You are listening to Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour, a podcast released on the first three Wednesdays of the month. Family crisis, relationship crisis, addiction crisis, no two crisis situations are the same. They vary by family, individual, and relationship. They can encompass complex family dynamics, emotional distress, anger issues, and entitlements, and often involve substance abuse. This podcast addresses these issues and others surrounding the addiction epidemic currently plaguing this country and the world. There is hope and help. Are you stuck, scared, or unsure of what to do next? If a situation with a loved one, spouse, or even a child has started to spiral, possibly becoming dangerous or threatening, it's time to seek help. My name is Scott H. Silverman. I help families navigate crisis situations. I'm the person you turn to in order to get you and your loved ones unstuck. Welcome back to the show. This is Michael Glenn Moore, and you're listening to Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour. Scott, once again, we have an interview guest that is just fantabulous. And I want to thank you again, Scott, for uh, securing him and all you've been doing so far on getting these uh, these wonderful guests on the show. Uh, Scott, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, uh, give out your phone number, all the good stuff that you normally do, and introduce our new uh, our, uh, our guest for today. This is Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour, and I'd like to put the H in my name because there's a guy in Japan with his last, first and last name, and he gets my stuff, and he gets very upset about it. So welcome to Happy Hour. We record every week, and one of the things that we feel our mission's about is to find messaging messages and information that not only helps the family who suffers from the disease of addiction, but helping the individual they love the most, who care about the most, who sometimes irritate the family the most. So today, you know, I've got a a special guy here today, um, Jay Wiley. He's special in a couple ways. One, because how we met years ago. Two, uh, how we, we kind of indirectly stayed in touch, indirectly through his family and others and friends. And then how we actually got back together again last year. And now we work together. Uh, and I'm proud to say that, you know, I, I, he's a colleague of mine and we've developed a great friendship and I know I can call on him and uh, he actually takes my calls. And Michael, you know, I have a lot of resistance about that. So it's nice to know that I've got someone I care about, I trust, and they answer my phone calls. And I'm going to let Jay tell you about his history. And then we're going to talk more about how, uh, what he's done in his life. He's now made a decision to work with others like I do to help them. And, and we're going to talk about the, uh, the veterans piece, what we do in our community and how we're doing it together. And he's the veteran, so he's the expert. So without further ado, Jay Wiley, the microphone is all yours. Well, Scott, thank you so much for, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Like you said, it has been a pleasure working with you and, and, and learning about the community and, and how I potentially could be of service. I, I do think I have a kind of interesting story and I, I try and use it in recovery as much as I can to, to be of service to others because, you know, there were some pretty, you know, kind of like your story, there were some pretty dark days and I don't want that to be, you know, the end note. I want the end note to be positive and what we can, you know, bring from the darkest days and, and shine a light for people to find their way out of whatever's uh, troubling them. So uh, I thought I'd share a little bit about my story and then talk a little bit more about the veterans piece. So as far as my background, I don't think there were a lot of outward indicators that I was going to be an alcoholic from my early upbringing childhood. 
I had a really small family, just me, my mom, and my dad. They didn't drink. They didn't smoke. They were pretty devout religious, so you know, not fanatical or anything, but we went to church a lot. I was, was born in the uh, suburbs of Los Angeles, but we moved to a relatively small town in Illinois. In fact, there was a cornfield at the end of my street from the ages five to age 13. So very, very typical American suburban rural upbringing. And I didn't have any contact with alcoholism or drug use or any of that kind of stuff. In fact, I think my childhood was pretty idyllic. I mean, we didn't even have relatives for the most part. They all lived in Texas and Georgia. We saw them maybe once a year and they all started dying out by the time I got to high school. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of indicators, but, you know, I think the seed was planted pretty early that I was restless. You know, I, I, I looked at my dad and, you know, I loved him, but he came home every night and I'm like, what, what are you doing? This is boring. Why do you always come home? I started wanting excitement and adventure and I kind of wanted to be part of something bigger than myself. I want to be part of something noble. And, and I think I was kind of getting that from watching TV and, and, and movies, you know, Star Wars came out when I was seven and, you know, John Wayne movies and, and uh, James Bond were really, really popular. And there was a show on TV, Black Sheep Squadron, Pappy Boyington was, was a fighter pilot who led that squadron in World War II and, and he became kind of a hero of mine. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to be a hero. I want to be part of something great. And so I said, well, from about age seven on, I decided I was going to be a military officer. That's what I was going to do. I was going to get in the military. You know, I hadn't decided what branch yet, but I was going to do that. And I was going to lead men in battle and win wars for my country and be part of something bigger than myself. The other thing I kind of noticed was that those guys, John Wayne, James Bond, Pappy Boynton, all drank a lot. They always kind of had a drink in their hands, right? You know, the vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. And I thought, eh, maybe there's something to that. But when I, uh, my family moved back to Los Angeles when I was in junior high, and I went to a Christian school. And that school would have kicked me out if I drank, did drugs, smoked, did any of that kind of stuff. And I didn't want to let anything get in the way of my dream of being in the military. So I didn't do any of that. You know, I, I played the straight and narrow did what I needed to do. I was going to get in the military come hell or high water. You know, something happened then that I think was, uh, looking back on it now, was pretty indicative of who I became. Because I made no secrets with anybody that this is what I wanted to do. So pretty much everybody around me just assumed, hey, you're going to go to a service academy, right? You're going to be Naval Academy, West Point, something like that. And I said out loud, no, I don't think I'm going to do that because I don't know any congressmen. I don't think I can get an appointment. But the truth is, I was afraid to apply. I was afraid that I was going to get rejected because it's so competitive. And so I didn't even submit the application. And that's a theme that's been in my life, that fear, that fear of failure and that perfectionism. My expectations are so high for life. I just, if it's not perfect, it's not worth doing, you know, and that, that discontent and disappointment because the, the world ain't like that was a real driver later on in, in my drinking. We'll come back to that theme in a minute. So I got into college. I got an ROTC scholarship, Navy ROTC scholarship. So boom, I had arrived. Here I am. I'm, I'm living my dream, right? I'm going to be a 
a Navy officer when this is all said and done. I'm in college. Now I can partake. I can do what men do or what I'd seen my heroes do, right? And so, you know, I was going to drink to bond with my peers. And that's, you know, was kind of the lifestyle. In fact, the first time I took a drink was to impress a girl. There's a senior girl who thought it would be fun to get the freshman drunk for the first time. And I drank whatever she put in front of me. I think my first drink was a grasshopper. Haven't had one since. But anything that she put in front of me, I pretty much was going to polish off to make an impression on this girl. I wound up throwing up over her balcony into the balcony of the apartment below. So I don't think the impression was as good as I was hoping for. But I didn't care because now I had found this magic new thing. Oh, my gosh. This, Oh, this elixir. You know, now this is what I really wanted. And I was off to the races. Went through college, lots of binge drinking. But it didn't seem unusual because everybody else was doing it, right? This is a big college, right? Big time college. And then I got into the Navy and my life changed because all of a sudden, hey, I was a commissioned officer. People were calling me, sir. I was responsible for people's lives, right? They were looking to me to get things done. And when I didn't get things done correctly, I got an ass chewing. I mean, I got screamed at and I had never experienced that before. So it threw me for a loop. And all of a sudden, all that fear of failure that I was talking about, that perfectionism, it just came to, to a full head. And I was constantly working myself to death because I wasn't going to fail. I wasn't going to let the team down. And I was driving myself like crazy to to insane lengths, really, to always be the best, to do the best I could, and to, to eliminate any possibility of failure from any evolution, any operation I was associated with. Now, of course, totally unrealistic goal, so it started this cycle. And the cycle was, I would be totally afraid of failing a particular mission. We would do everything that we could, and I personally would go to insane lengths to make sure that that mission was 100% perfect. We would do the mission. It would actually come off pretty well, but all I would focus on is every little detail that wasn't 100% perfect. And I would feel shame, guilt, remorse, disappointment. And as soon as I could, I would drink to make those feelings go away. I would drink beforehand to give myself the, the confidence, you know, that it was going to be okay and it calmed my nerves. And I would drink after to, to alleviate my guilt. And the thing was, you know, Things happened in the Navy. People, people around me started to get killed. I lost a, a couple of classmates that I graduated with in aviation accidents. A couple of the ships I served on had people get killed. I had nothing to do with any of them. But the reality of the situation was, you know, kind of right in my face. And this is this is before the wars, right? This is this is just sustained operations at sea, which which are pretty dangerous. So the thing was, I actually was pretty successful. And, and I, I was getting accolades, I was getting promoted, I was getting awards. And every time I got promoted, I got more responsibility. And my fear got worse and worse and worse. And so my drinking got more and more and more. And I started developing all these rules for my drinking. Hey, I'm not going to drink on Monday nights. I'm not going to drink, you know, uh, more than this amount. I'm not going to drink after 10 p.m. I'm not going to drink, you know, alone. And slowly but surely, I found rationalizations, excuses to cross all those lines because I needed it in order, or I thought I needed it in order to function, or, or, in order to be this 
optimal leader that I really wanted to be. I thought I was being successful because I was drinking, that it was helping me to hang on. I've come to find out I was successful in spite of my drinking. It was actually holding me back. So as time went on and my drinking increased and I crossed all those lines, I started to notice my behavior was getting more and more out of control. I was blacking out more and more. And when I was at social functions, I was doing things that were awkward or inappropriate and people were talking to me after the fact. And so I, you know, I would start waking up on blackouts and be like, ah, damage control. What did I do last night? Who did I offend? What do I need to do to make this right? I started having people come up to me and say, Hey, sir, we took care of you last night. Don't worry about it. You're okay. Hey, it happens. Wink, wink. You know, you're a great guy. We don't want anything to happen to you. You know, we're going to be, we got your back. And I was looking at them like, I have no earthly idea what you are talking about. And the, the, the fear and the shame, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? You know, the Navy's rules for behavior are, are far stricter than those in general society in many ways, especially among, you know, the officer corps. So I started to get just terrified that I was going to get a DUI or I was going to get you know, in an altercation with a senior or something bad was going to happen, right? So I developed a new strategy and the new strategy is drinking alone, locking myself down. I was like the wolf man before a full moon. I would get as much booze as I could get, lock myself into a room so that nothing bad could happen. And that's how I drank. You know, I would maybe go to a social function uh, with some sailors, have one or two drinks, feel restless, irritable, discontent. And as soon as I could, make a plausible excuse to, to bail out of there so I could go back privately and drink as much as I wanted. And that lasted a long time. But like I said, you know, life was actually getting better for me despite my best attempts to the contrary. I managed to get married. You know, I took this woman hostage. I managed to have a couple of kids and actually things were going okay. But now I had established this pattern drinking was my constant companion. If I was sad, I drank to be happier. If I was happy, I drank to be even more happy and more ecstatic. I was chasing that feeling. I wanted to feel obliterated all the time because that's when everything was okay. I didn't have to worry about failing. I didn't have to worry about not being perfect. I didn't have to worry about getting in trouble. Everything was okay. And that lasted a good long time. And then finally, I I got the brass ring. I was given command of a destroyer. So now I'm the captain. I'm the commanding officer of a guided missile destroyer. I'm taking that ship on deployment. We go out to sea and we had an amazing, successful deployment. We rescued 55 mariners at sea. We fought pirates. We intercepted some pirates that were attempting to seize a tanker with a crew of 13. We managed to sink their skiffs and save that ship. Um, we were able to do counterterrorism missions. We were we were on station for the Arab Spring. We were in the South China Sea, you know, when there were some issues in Korea and, and patrolling some very dangerous waters. And we came home with all of our sailors and, and did an amazing job. We got a number of awards and accolades, but we came home with every sailor. And I was very proud of that. But the thing was, I was unable to isolate myself. I couldn't hide anymore. I was the captain. I was on a microscope slide. And when the crew found out that I like to drink, that was their way of connecting with me. And if we went to a ship social function, I never had an empty hand. They were just feeding me, feeding me, feeding me. And I started to say, 
I trust these guys. I will never let them down. They're never going to let me down. Everything's going to be good. So I started to let my guard down, and that's when I the bottom dropped out. So I went to you know some ship's functions, and man, I crossed every line. I crossed every boundaries. My, my behavior was totally inappropriate, just completely out of control, and boom, the world ended for me. You know, Navy wasn't going to tolerate that kind of thing. I got relieved of command. I got court-martialed, and I got sent to the brig. So I went from the bridge to the brig, from being a you know, commander of a destroyer to being a prisoner. And all of a sudden, I could see for the first time in my life that the common denominator in my problems was my drinking. That's what was causing me the problems, not solving them. So I was able to raise my hand and say, hey, something's really wrong. And the, the Navy did me a solid on the way out. They sent me to the, the Navy Substance Abuse Rehabilitation Program, and I got introduced to recovery. Became part of a 12-step program that focuses on alcohol and uh, you know, found a sponsor, did the steps, and my life changed. It transformed. So I took every bit of responsibility for my actions that I possibly could. I tried to make every possible amend that I possibly could. And I said, you know, I need to find a new way forward because, you know, my entire life up to that point had been being a naval officer and that's gone. So now what do you do? Now what? I was like Lieutenant Dan in the Forrest Gump with no leg. Now what? Now what do I do? And so I started to, in my recovery journey, I started to meet other veterans. And I started to, to hear that a lot of their stories were very similar to mine. A lot of them were dealing with PTSD. A lot of them had gotten in a ton of trouble in the military because of those high standards and because of the, the way that relationships are defined between seniors and juniors and, and that type of thing. And some guys had gotten themselves in horrible legal trouble because they were self-medicating their PTSD with substances. And now they're coming out of the military with a bad discharge or with a criminal record or, or whatever it was, and there weren't a lot of services for them. So I started working with every other vet I could in recovery to try and reach out to these guys and to try to find what resources were out there. And it was kind of mind boggling. There are so many organizations and agencies that are out there to help veterans it's hard to know who's who and who does what and, and how they can help. And each one of them seems to have some different rules. Well, this one will work with veterans with a bad discharge. This one won't. They can refer to each other. This one is a government agency. This one's a nonprofit. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, there's some out there that were, were preying on veterans and taking advantage of veterans. So I started to develop kind of a, a primer, you know, a, a record of all these organizations out there that I had interfaced with. And I would start sharing that with my, my brother and sister veterans so they could find a way ahead. And it's been a wonderful journey. At this point, you know, I'm very active in a number of different veteran organizations. I'm kind of the rep who says, if you have a substance use problem, I'm the guy you can talk to. If you have a bad discharge, I'm the guy you can talk to. First of all, I'll understand. I'll listen to you. And I'm certainly in no position to judge. But also... I can tell you what my experience has been, and I can point you to some of the colleagues, some of the peers that I've met in my journey, and maybe we can put you on the right path. So it's been an incredible journey. I am approaching nine years of sobriety a week after next. So my wife and I are happier than we've ever been. 
My two kids and I are happier than we've ever been. And it's just such a, an honor, a privilege to be part of the journey with you, Scott, and to, to now start this um, effort to help veterans and first responders to, uh, you know, overcome their demons the way I have at least thus far been able to overcome mine. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the background on me in a nutshell and, and kind of where I'm looking to go. Jay, thanks. Thank you. That's, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say breathless or speechless, but you know, it's a terrific story and what a journey. I mean, when you sit and talk about, you know, being in command of a battleship and taking out pirates and, and serving our country and doing it around the world. And then, you know, through this process, you know, I call it a disease. And I believe we've talked about it enough. I can say that you, you believe you suffer from it as well. And, and the idea of being able to you know, structurally and formally give back to others, which is the journey, the part of the journey that we've had together and that we're working on together is working with veterans. You know, it's, and it's, it's interesting to your point, you know, why is it so hard for veterans to get help? You know, and historically my experience has been, you know, and I want you to speak to this, that, you know, the VA, you know, this powerful $280 billion budgeted group from by the federal government's job has always been to serve the veterans. And, you know, I don't think anyone out there who's, you know, got access to any kind of media doesn't know that over the years people have struggled to get the kind of support and help that they're looking for and need. And, and I know that the VA has been working on ways to try to make some changes, but while they're doing that, what is it you would want to tell other veterans on, on how we can make it easy for them to raise their hand and say, I need help. And, and how do they get that? What is, what is your perspective as a veteran who's in recovery, who, you know, has their family intact and is working on, you know, all the skills that's necessary to be a major contributor. And, and I look, it's different when you're in the military, you're, you're kind of in this world and you're doing what you're doing. But when you come back to the real world, you know, it, it exists here. First responders have a 25% north, north of that substance abuse issue. And I'm sure the military is pretty darn close to 25% or more. And, and, yes. and their job description is pretty tough. We haven't spent a lot of time on PTSD and mental health issues. And, you know, just, just the other day, I think it was in the news, this well-decorated, multi-experienced veteran who I think I think it was Afghanistan. He'd been to on four or five or six different tours. Was literally home the other day and did something during the day, and then at night took his own life. And that happens a lot with our veterans. And that shouldn't be an outcome for the hard work that they've done. So, what do you want to tell veterans that would make it easy? And look, give them give them a phone number if you want to call or a website to visit. I, I, you know, we'll do it at the end of this segment. But I want to make sure that people know there is hope. There is hope. And you know, you're you're a shining example. You're a shining example if you're willing to put in the footwork. But if you didn't know what you didn't know, how would you get started? So back to you on what is it you want to tell veterans or family members of veterans on how you think they could navigate next steps to get access to support, maybe at a different level than they have in the past, or simply how to ask for help. So you made a, there's a lot in what you just said there, a lot of, important truths that that I'd like to try and unpack a little bit. So the first one is, like you said, it is different when you're on active duty than when you're a veteran from from the individual service member's perspective. So, and, and I think that's the biggest difficulty for veterans is making that mental transition. So when you're in the military, you're part of the team and you're committed to that team, okay? 
And, and, you know, for the most part, that team is committed to you mostly. Okay. When you transition out, that's not there anymore. And you no longer have that responsibility. I mean, yes, we still have a responsibility to maintain secrets and, you know, classifications. I get all that and, and be patriotic, but you're no longer part of that military organization. You don't have to give your life to the system anymore. Now it's time for self-care. You've got to take care of yourself. And that's a huge mental transition. It's very, very difficult. Let, uh, let me interrupt and ask a quick question. Sure. When that happens, it's not like a 18 month transitional period. It's like a, a switch is flipped. I mean, you know, your date, you know, your historically when your last day of service is going to be, but you know, when you say, you know, self-care, if you've never practiced it, you know, right. within your own mindset or you've never actually done it before. So when that flip switch gets flipped and you're, you're active duty and you've got all that support and all the structure and all of a sudden now you have to kind of breathe on your own, so to speak, that's gotta be a traumatic experience, even though it might be mm -hmm. subtle for some, but it's gotta be pretty significant. I would think it is. And it, and it's the longer you serve, the, the more traumatic it is the military and the veterans administration and veteran service organizations. I think they recognize this. It's pretty obvious. It's a serious problem. And so we're trying to make that transition as soft a landing as we can, but there's only so much you can do. Our mutual friend, Maurice Wilson, who runs Reboot, does a three-week program where they transition veterans. And it's, you know, part of it, the auspices of the, of the program were to help veterans to find jobs, but the, they don't even talk about jobs for the first two weeks. They only talk about that psychic change that has to take place being from the military and being in this you know, new civilian environment. The language is different. You wear different outfits. You know, how you relate to people is different. The expectations you have on people is different. It's just, it's such a change. You're right. There is, there is a lot of trauma associated with that. So, so that piece is making veterans aware of that, that, that awareness in and of itself is the first battle and, and maybe the most important battle. So the veteran has to understand it's different now I need to think and feel differently and, and behave differently. And so now it is okay. In fact, it's even courageous for me to raise my hand and say, something's not quite right. I think I need some help. Because in the military, that, that's really frowned on. We, we, it's changed some. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think senior leaders are trying to convince members that it's, that it's okay to do that. But really... If you raise your hand in the military, I mean, the, the harsh reality is, yes, you are potentially affecting your promotion status. You are potentially affecting your combat readiness, right? Or maybe your flight status or, or all other types of qualifications because the military is not going to let you do some of the things we do in the military if they think you're not ready physically, mentally, whatever. So uh, you got to get out of that mentality. You don't, you don't have those things anymore. So it's okay to say, Hey, something's not quite right. I need some help. So that's the, that's the first thing. And I'm really glad you, you, you brought up that point. The second thing is you're right. The veterans administration is trying to help veterans. It's a huge organization. They do a lot of good things. There's a lot of good people there. They are largely staffed by veterans themselves, but you're right. It's a bureaucracy. It's a bureaucracy that's run by the government. And, and we all know how that goes. It's, you know, the post office, right? It's just, it's not a, good organization for change. 
So my recommendation is to go to veteran service organizations, to try and go to the VFW, San Diego Veterans Coalition, some other veteran service organization that can help you engage and find the services you need because it, you're right, the VA is monolithic. So that's so, so, really something you got to work on. So back to, you know, uh, we just have a couple minutes left. That's why my hand was that I didn't have a question. Sure. <laughs> right. um, and only you and I can see each other. Michael is, is hidden in his, his special, uh, right. you know, uh, RV that he travels around the world in. When, you know, I talked about flipping the switch, but, you know, when you flip the switch, if you're self-medicating through that transition, okay, or all of a sudden you flip the switch and you go from this full-time, you know, supported environment where there's lots of people, you have a full hierarchy, you've got footprints in the sand, all of a sudden now you're in your own apartment or you're in your home or you're back home with your family, you've got, you know, you've got to make some decisions. And if you're under the influence, something mood altering, and, and then you're also on top of that potentially impacted by PTSD or stress or untreated trauma or anxiety or depression or sleep deprivation, you know, it's really, really hard. I mean, to think about what yeah. you go through as a as a, a service person, and then you become a veteran, and now you've got to learn how to live life on life's terms. And if you're suffering from any of those uh, maladaptive issues, where do you go for that? So share with us how people can. And I, you know, I know the VA is out there, and I know there's a lot of different you know service organizations in San Diego, but I, and I know we may get a little overwhelmed with it, but tell people how to reach, you know, Jay. How do they contact right. Jay? And, and we can help them, you know, funnel questions. I mean, there's lots of different places in town, and people, I think, have a good idea, and you can Google it. But if someone says, you know what, I, I don't want to go there. I, I heard your story, Jay. Do you mind if I call you? And that's the thought in their head. How do they reach you? What's your website? How do we let people know that, you know what, if you're not sure what self-care means, if you don't know that you have or are suffering from, but you need some help and guidance and want to talk to somebody, I mean, I'm happy to help with that as well. But how do we talk them through what next steps might look like from your perspective and information that I know will be power for them to have? So if it's a crisis, you know, obviously dial 911. Correct. Get help that way. There's courage to call 211 San Diego. That's another one. If you're really in crisis, if you're a loved one of a veteran, if you're a veteran yourself and you're not quite sure, you can call me for sure. Uh, you can go to the uh, Confidential Recovery website, uh, confidentialrecovery.com. You can go call uh, 619-452-1200. I'm at extension three. Happy to talk to you there. Uh, and if you're, I think it's really important. If you're a veteran and you're, suffering call if you're the family member of a veteran and you're you're wondering if there's something you can do call if you have a fellow veteran we have to start taking care of each other and we have to start asking the hard questions like are you okay and and unfortunately i think you know the answer is no we're really not and so you know it's going to be people especially other veterans in, in recovery who can say i've been there it's okay I can help you with this. Let's talk about it. That's great, Jay. And and the good news is when, when you 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 know what it's like not to be okay. So when someone calls you, your level of empathy and understanding and anecdotal and experiential uh, exposure to these things and the fact that you you know you're coming up on on nine weeks of uh, nine weeks nine nine years of of recovery is remarkable. I mean that's a long time. It's a lifetime for somebody who's been yeah. self medicating for days, weeks, months, or decades. So you know with that. I want to thank you, Jay, for coming on today, and I, I really appreciate you sharing it. And I know when people listen to your story, they're going to know it's a lot more okay to make a phone call, 
And folks, if you ever need to reach me, you know how to do it. But I'm going to tell you again, it's Scott H. Silverman. You can always Google me. You can reach me at Confidential Recovery as well. And I'm on a different extension that Jay's it's announced there. But he's the powerhouse. He's the man that makes it happen. <laughs> and uh, yourcrisiscoach.com. And my direct phone number is area code 619-993-2738. 619-993-2738. Your Crisis Coach, your family navigator. And between us, you know, we've, we've suffered enough to be able to say, if you're ready to make a change, if you're willing to listen and talk about what it is that you may or may not know, that's okay because each and every one of us, you know, we spend years trying to figure out ways to, you know, put ourselves in the ground. And, and I'm tired of going to funerals. I call it my funeral avoidance year. And I know that, you know, Jay's experience, you know, as a veteran and as a, an armed service person who spent, you know, probably half his life, you know, working for uh, our country and defending us abroad knows how hard it is to make the transition. So if you need some experience, strength, and hope, I know he's got it. So with that, Michael, um, we'll turn it back over to you and be sure and share your information as well, Michael, so people know how to reach you and us. And we'll have this uh, podcast up on the air, happy hour in a couple of weeks, and we'll push it out there and let the veterans know. And, you know, San Diego, by the way, who don't, those who don't know is where we're located. And according to what I just heard recently, we're the third largest city uh, per capita of veterans in the country. So, but if you're sitting somewhere, if you're in, you know, Louisiana, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, you know, Florida, New York, wherever you are, if you're not sure where to go to navigate, call us and we'll, we'll be, we'll be able to help point you in a certain direction. But a lot of our work we do over the phone anyway, especially in today's world where we're all kind of hunkering down at home with the quarantine. Right. We'll do anything we can to help anybody, but obviously here in San Diego is, is kind of where I live. I'm not kind of, it's where I live and where Jay lives and his family. So, you know, if you're looking for some uh, local help, you know, we're here for you as well. And we want to make sure that you make that phone call. And you can call us again. I'm going to give you a confidential number, 619-452-1200 and Jay's extensions number three. And he monitors the phone all the time, night and day. We're, uh, you know, we're available because we know when you're making the call, you're ready to make a change. And we will appreciate that. Michael, back to you. I don't really have anything to add to the show other than I want to ask Jay if he has something, uh, a positive quote or affirmation that he could leave us with today. That was on the email you didn't get from Michael. <laughs> right. So, so my ship that I was in command of, the motto was rise above. And it was because the ship was named after a submarine officer who discovered the Momsen lung, which is a rescue device. And so we would always end every announcement with rise above. And it's funny how that has now become my personal motto because just like Scott said, it's, this is a disease and how do we, you know, how do we overcome it? Well, we got to rise above. 